There were a few things that really kind of brought fear into my heart. And, and, you know, maybe some of you have some similarities, right? When you're a child, everything seems so big and so scary at times. So something very ordinary can seem very, very frightening. But for me as a child, there were three things that I really worried about. And these three things, for some reason, when I was young, really kind of consumed my mind. They made me think, okay, when will these things happen? And they were quicksand, the Bermuda Triangle, and enemies coming to get me. It took me a while to realize that the sand at the playground was not going to turn into quicksand, and I was safe, and that I probably would never fly somewhere and have never flown somewhere where I need to worry about the Bermuda Triangle. But enemies is a little bit different. Oftentimes when I think of enemies, you know, maybe it's because I enjoyed Batman, so I think of the Joker, like there's someone out to get you kind of an idea. And so we sometimes have this idea that there's these enemies out there going to get you, and they're seeking to hurt you and harm you and all these kind of things. And so sometimes when I would read the Bible, this idea of enemies is what would come to mind. I would think about, oh, there's somebody out to get me. And while the Bible definitely talks about enemies like that, you know, warring nations, there's people out to get you, people who are against you, there's more of a general sense of enemies that seems to come up. And the general sense is that there are people out there who are not for your good. They're not looking out for you. They don't want the best for you. And when we think of enemies like that, the truth is we all have a lot of enemies. There's a good chance there are people who don't agree with you and don't want the best for you. They might not do it overtly. Sometimes they might. It might be in a work situation where it seems like there is your boss never wants to give you an opportunity and always gives opportunities to someone else. And while that word enemy is strong, that's kind of what it is. It's someone who's not out there for your good. And the reality is, is that there are enemies everywhere. In fact, you might be an enemy to someone else. It might be that you are not looking out for someone else's good, not trying to encourage them to be the best they can be. Sometimes, though, people are against you. That's just the reality. Just because you are you, or just because you fit into a category of people. And so sometimes enemies can be systematic. The reality that there are systems and situations in place that are working against your good, even if you have nothing to do with it. So what do you do when you feel like the world is out to get you? They may actually be out to get you, of course, but they also may not be and just not be looking out for your well-being. And so... How do we process that? How do we walk through a reality that not everybody wants your good? Not everybody wants the best for you. How do we live a life that reflects Jesus to the world around us when the world around us might not want Jesus reflected to it? And to do that, we're going to figure out how to do that. We're going to look at Psalm 69. As we've been in this series on lament, We've been exploring what it means to be in touch with some of our sadder feelings. The feelings of rejection, the feelings of sorrow, the feelings of hopelessness that sometimes we can so easily ignore and pretend everything is all right. But as we look through the Psalms, we find ourselves in good company with people who feel real human emotions. They don't just pretend everything is okay. 
And this psalm is one of those psalms as well. It's a psalm that, that brings out some real raw emotion and puts it where it belongs. And it does so not just for us as individuals, but also for us corporately. Like, what does it mean for a church to feel like they've got a world against them? And again, this might be real, it might be perceived, but how do you process a world that is different than you coming up against you? And so Psalm 69 is going to kind of hopefully give us some insights in how to do this in our daily lives as well as corporately as a community. And so as we talked about previously, when you read the Psalms, the introductions are really, really important. Unlike, as, as uh, Alex mentioned last week, unlike you know, some of our headings that we find in the Bibles, this wasn't put in by a translator later on. This was by the writers of the Psalms. And so Psalm 69 starts like this. It says, for the director of music, sorry, I'm on the wrong page. For the director of music to the tune of lilies of David. For the director of music to the tune of lilies of David. This tells us a few really important things. The first one is that it's for the director of music. So what does a director of music do? Well, they direct music. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means they kind of direct music for people to sing. It's a director of music for people to engage in. So this is a psalm for people to engage in, in song. For the director of music, to the tune of lilies. So this is a song that they knew. I don't know this song personally. It doesn't give us any indication of what this tune is. But when I hear the title, Lilies, I think it's a nice, pretty song. It's a nice melody. It's like, Lilies, this is so nice. It's like, you know, Caitlin or Karen was singing it. It's like these beautiful voices, Lilies. But that's not what this psalm is going to be. This psalm is going to be something a little different, but it's to that tune. And it's of David. So David is the author of the psalm. We, we assume that. It could be that it's written in the tradition of David, so sometimes that's some of the language that gets used in the Bible as well. But we're going to go with this assumption of it's from David. So it's a psalm of David. So he's sharing his reflection on something very real to the tune of lilies. And so as he's sharing this, so who is David? Some of us who are more familiar with Scripture, we've heard his name before. He is known as the one after God's own heart, meaning he is someone who pursues God, who lives like God. But if we read the stories of David, we see that he's messed up and broken as well. He makes huge mistakes. He's the king of Israel. He gets people killed. He cheats on people. He's, he's got horrible realities to him. So what makes him someone after God's own heart? He's constantly trying to correct his wrongs. He's repentant. And he seeks God, and he tries to readjust his life when he's done wrong. So that's why he's known as someone after God's own heart. So this is his psalm. Psalm 69 is his psalm. So let's dive into it, to the tune of lilies. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Now just think of that first line, okay? So you're thinking the tune of lilies, it's nice and peaceful. But it's like, save me, O God. To me, it's something more guttural. It's like... You know, maybe this is like a more heavy metal kind of a song. It's kind of like, save me, oh God, you know. But it's to the tune of Lily, so let's go with that. So it's, save me, oh God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there's no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help, 
My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. David, as he is preaching these words out, meaning he's proclaiming these words out into this song, he's saying, God, save me. God, save me. It feels like the water is up to my neck. And it's the interesting thing about the word that gets used there by David is it's a, it has dual meaning. So it's like, you know, neck or throat, but it also means body or self. And so it's like he's overcome by water. He's drowning. He's reaching out for help. There's no foothold. He doesn't know what to do. And he's crying out to God. His voice is parched, probably because he's trying to sing to the tune of lilies and it's hard. But he's exhausted. And he says, God, it's like there are more people against me than I have hair. And for some of us, maybe we have a receding hairline. We think, oh, that's not so many. But I imagine he had a full head of hair. It's like everybody's out to get me, God. Everybody. It's exhausting. And then he says, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. So people are coming to him and he's saying, it's like I have to give back more than I can imagine. I didn't even take this. And they're telling me to give it back to them. How do I do this, oh God? How do I do this? David is is expressing his innate feeling of just being overwhelmed. And i got to ask, can you relate at all? Have you ever had a moment where it feels like you're up to your neck? It could be just the reality of whatever you're going through. It could be just the overwhelming situation of your finances or your family matters or your work situation or whatever it might be. And it's just like, I'm up to my neck. I can't handle this. This is David's cry, and it's sometimes our cry. It says, God, help us. I'm tired of crying out to you. My throat is parched. And then he says this, You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. There's something interesting in this tiny little statement. David acknowledges that he's playing a part in the situation he's in. He is admitting to this reality. And he says, God, you know the part I play. God, you know what I've done wrong. You know that there's always two sides to a pancake. It doesn't really matter. It's not all one-sided. He says, God, you know, and nothing is hidden from you. My guilt is not hidden from you. As David is crying this out, he's confessing the reality that his situation isn't all out there. There's something in him, too. He has a part to play in it. Sometimes when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel like people are against us, it's hard to see the part we actually play in it. Because it feels like everybody's outnumbering the hairs on our head. But David is showing us a pattern of going, okay, what what do you do? What did you do? What part do you play? Do you play a part? And maybe there are situations where you don't play a part at all. Absolutely possible. But for David's case, he's saying, God, you know if I've done anything wrong here. You know this. It's not hidden from you. And it's important for us to keep that in mind and going, God, what did I 
play in here? What part did I play, if any part at all? Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. When those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. David is explaining, this is what's bringing this feeling. What he's saying is like, when I am abiding by my instruction from you, God, it's like everybody's out to get me. When I am doing what you ask of me, when I am worshiping you, what happens is people, when they get drunk, make fun of me in a song. People are mocking him. People are against him. And what is the cause? The cause is his faith in God. He's going up against people. It feels like people are against him because of what he is believing and how he is living it out. And he's saying this is what it's like. And what's interesting about it is that it's not a world out there, but it's people that should be agreeing with him. It's like in the context of his religious system, of his worship system. It's the people who should be worshiping are the ones who are making fun of him. The people who should be praying with him are the ones saying, you're praying, what a loser. The people who should be singing the songs are saying, hey, we're going to get drunk and make up our own songs and make fun of you. The people who should be on his side are against him. And he feels like everything is against him. Verse 13, but I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the floodwaters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. In the midst of his reality of what he's feeling, of what it feels like his perception is everybody's out to get me, everybody is against me, he is trusting God and saying, God, rescue me. I believe you can rescue me. Just as we sang in the songs today, he is our rescuer. So we sang in the songs today, he is good. He's good. He's faithful then and he's faithful now. And as he's singing his song, David. He's saying, God, I trust this. I believe this. I know that, God, you are for me, even if everybody seems against me. And he says, answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. 
They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And for those of us who've maybe been around church for a while, this image should draw something to mind. This image of their gave me gall for food and vinegar for thirst should bring us to the cross. It should remind us of when Jesus was on the cross and dying. And he said he thirsts. And so they gave him a sponge with vinegar on it. And then he said, it is finished. It should bring to mind the scorn and contempt that Jesus faced as well. It should bring to mind not just David's experience and our experience, but the reality that Jesus had a world against him. And he went to the cross for us. And in going to the cross and dying and rising again, he died for the forgiveness of our sins, for the experience of wholeness and life in its fullness. And he did it when the world was against him for the world that was against him. This statement is a reminder to us, because we're after the fact, of how significant the cross really is. That in the midst of our own feelings of being overwhelmed, that the world is out to get us, that Jesus faced that fear way before we did. And he was triumphant over it. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent over forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents, for they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out from the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. In this paragraph, you should be like, wow, that's harsh. To be blotted out from the book of life is to have eternal separation from God. This is David's song. He's saying, these people who are out to get me, these people who are against me, God, I want you to wipe them out. I want them gone. And there's something we should really pay attention to here. Two things, actually. The first one is, because he's saying this doesn't mean that God's doing it. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we make the mistake of going, oh, this is what's happening right here. No, this is someone's inner anguish coming out in print. This is someone's inner feeling saying, God, this is what I want. It doesn't say that God is doing this, but it's a human saying, God, this is what I want from you. And the second thing is this. We need to be honest that sometimes we want that too. Yes, we all should be believed, hey, we need to love our enemies, right? We need to love our enemies. Jesus taught us that. But the truth is, many of us, when we face enemies or people against us or people we just don't like, Sometimes we're praying the prayer that David writes in song here and saying, God, I just want you to wipe them out. Get rid of them for me. It'd be so much easier if I didn't have to deal with this. And part of being able to love your enemies is to be honest about the emotion that's going on internally. If you just keep denying, saying, oh, this is no big deal. I don't really care. I love them, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, it erupts in you. And you've never really dealt with it. You never really processed what you're feeling. What David is showing us is how do we process when we feel overwhelmed? How do we process when we don't really like someone? And it's being honest. Bringing your honesty to God. 
saying, God, this is where I'm at. Now, as a follower of Jesus, I would say, bring this to God and say, God, help me to change. Help me to see people like you see them. Even the people I think are my enemies, help me to see you in them. That's ultimately the goal. But we need to be honest about what we're really dealing with on the inside. And so David shows us that, this honesty in him. And he says, But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. Amazingly, not surprisingly, in the midst of him saying, God, I want you to wipe these people out, he's saying, but God, protect me. Right? We want good for ourselves. Ultimately, the goal is that transition to want good for everybody, even those we seem like are against us. But for David, he's saying, this is where I'm at right now. And sometimes we need to be honest that this is where we're at. This is where your heart is. It's not so positive. It's not so loving. Bringing that to God in honesty is critical. Because the truth is God can take it and God can transform it. But if you hide it, you're missing that opportunity. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. The people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell there. As David is expressing his heart, what's going on inside him, this feeling that there's more people against him that are for him, this reality of saying, just because I'm worshiping you, God, it feels like people are against me, whether they are or not. He says, this is what my experience is. And his real, honest feeling and experience is to say, God, I want you to get rid of these people. Make it easier for me. But he concludes in changing his focus and saying, God, I'm going to worship you. And he shifts from what the reality of what is and goes to what if and says, God, I'm focusing on you. I'm worshiping you. And this is the reality of it. Well, for some of us, we could say, well, I've never been through this. I don't know what it's like. Or I don't really have enemies. Or it doesn't feel like everybody's out against me. But the truth is, if you're trying to live in a moral, ethic reality based on Scripture, that's not the way our world works. Now, I'm not trying to say, like, the world is out to get you or anything like that, because it's not necessarily. But it's operating in a very different belief system than what Scripture points to, than what Jesus pointed to. Now, there might be some similarities in places, but there's also a lot of differences. And for David, he's pointing this out. He's saying, when I go do these things that I'm doing for God... It's like the world is against me. And so the reality of our situation is that if you're trying to follow Jesus and somebody else or a lot of people aren't, that yeah, they're living different. And so it feels like they're against you. It may not be that they're actually against you. They're just living faithfully to what they believe. But if you try to live faithfully to what you believe, it can put you into conflict. Because actually, this is one of the things that Jesus says himself in John's gospel, in John 15, 19. Where he says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. 
But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Jesus understood that the way he was trying to invite people into was different than the world around him. And at times it would appear in conflict and be difficult to try and live that faithfully. And so Jesus, when he invites us into this life, he invites us into a place of conflict. In a place where it feels like the world is against you. It may not be that they really are. This isn't like a culture war type thing. But it's a reality that there's a different way of living that Jesus invites us to. And so for the same for David, when he was expressing this, he was expressing like, this is the way I'm trying to be faithful to you, God, and the world around me is just making fun of me. When we try to be faithful to what God invites us to, the reality is it may appear like people are against us. How do we live with that? How do we live that out? Now, one thing I want to be clear is that one of the mistakes that I think often we make is that what we do is we go, oh, they're against me, so I am going to judge them. And I am going to tell them everything wrong with them. And in fact, that is the opposite of what the Bible teaches. In fact, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says the exact opposite to that statement. That exact opposite to that way of living. But unfortunately, a lot of churches are doing that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote this in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Paul explains to the church that it's not our job to tell the world how horrible it is. It's our job to be faithful to what God calls us to. As David is expressing this in Psalm 69, he's saying, God, it's like everybody's against me because I'm doing these things trying to be faithful. That's what it will feel like. But our job isn't to say, oh, those dirty sinners, oh, those horrible people. Our job is not to judge the world around us, but to be faithful as a community of faith to what God invites us to. And so David sets us up of what do we do if that's the case? What do we do if it feels like the world is against us? What do we do if nothing really makes sense when we try to be faithful to God, but people perceive it as something else? How do we do this? I think there's five things that David points out to in this passage. Five things that we've looked at that helps us to see what to do. You know, as he starts off this psalm, he talks about the water overtaking him like he's drowning. And if you've ever been in water and you feel like you're drowning, what do you usually do? You reach your hand out for someone to rescue you. Similar to how when Jesus is walking on water with Peter and Peter says, starts to fall and he says, Lord, save me, Jesus reaches his hand to bring him out of the water. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to reach your hand out right now, like actually physically reach your hand out. Thank you. You're not all doing it. I'm going to wait. Everybody reach your hand out. <laughs> right? And you got five fingers. Most of us have five fingers. I don't want to be exclusive, but most of us have five fingers. 
you got five fingers, and there's five things, I think, that Jesus is telling us to do through David's words when we feel overwhelmed. The first one is confession. So we'll bring the pinky down. David shows us of him confessing, saying, Lord, you know, you know my folly. You know my folly. When we are in situations, we need to bring a confession to say, God, I know I'm not perfect. Help me to see where my wrong is. Confession. Second one is honesty. David is incredibly honest with God and says, God, I want you to blot these people out from the book of life. I want them to spend eternity without you. How honest are we when we feel overwhelmed? Now, it might be just honesty with God, of being able to pray with God and say, God, this is how I feel. It might be honesty with people around us saying, I feel overwhelmed by this. Can you help me? If you're anything like me, you don't do that. That's not healthy. David shows us his honesty of saying, God, this is what I desire. Again, it's not God saying, this is what I'm doing. It's his human, real emotion saying, this is what I desire. The third thing he does is he trusts God. Do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe that God has your best in mind? Do you believe, as we sang in that song, that as he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now? If you don't trust God, it's really hard to go through difficult times and see what God is doing. It's really easy to think everyone's out against you because you don't believe that God has something better in mind. Do you trust him? That even though things might not be good right now, there might be something better than you could imagine. The fourth one is faithfulness. David demonstrates that even though it seemed like everybody was out to get him, it seemed like everybody had, with all the hairs on his head, were out to get him, he continued to wear sackcloth. He continued to pray. He continued to worship. Even though people mocked him, he continued to be faithful to what God invited him to. Be faithful to what he invites you to. Faithfulness is what you will be judged on. Are you faithful to what Christ invites you to? It's not a matter of judging anyone else. Just be faithful yourself. And the last one is your thumb. And this is important because thumbs make us different, right? Opposable thumbs makes us higher, more intelligent creatures. Is worship. And it's indispensable. David shows us that we worship God. We shift our focus from what is in our struggle and our situation and we put it on God. It is hard for us to continue to worry when we're so busy worshiping God. When God becomes the focus, you start to go, okay, it's not on my enemies or these people I feel are against me, but it is on God. How do I bring my focus to God? David does so at the end of the psalm of reminding that God is the God of his salvation. And worship is so much more than just singing four songs on a Sunday. If that is all the worship you do in the week, you are lying to yourself. Because the truth is you're worshiping all the time. Whenever you say this is the most important thing to me right now or in general, could be a person, could be a job, could be money, you are worshiping it. What does it look like to shift your focus from everything else and say, God, you are the most important to me? What does it look like to shift everything else when you reach out your hand to go, God, I need to be rescued to say, I'm going to focus on you and not in my situation. That's the reality of the situation of Jesus rescuing Peter from the water. When he took the, Peter took the focus off himself and his thinking and put it back on Jesus, he was able to walk back into that boat.
When you feel like the world around you is out to get you, are you focusing on the world around you or are you focusing on the God who loves you? When you worship, you bring the focus where it needs to be. And this is what makes you different. This is what helps you withstand the struggle of feeling like the water is rising to your neck, like your feet have no footing. This is what brings into hopefulness. David shows us these five things. These five things that we can bring into our life every day of confessing, of being honest about what we feel, about trusting God even when the situation seems difficult, of continuing to be faithful to what God invites you to as we read through Scripture of what it means to follow Jesus, even when there's not a world around us trying to follow with him. And ultimately, putting our focus on God, saying you are what matters most in worship. When we do this, the water might be coming up to our necks, but we're reaching out for someone to rescue us. And we can feel that and experience that in Jesus. Let's pray, and then if we have any questions, we can ask them. God, I thank you that you are uh, the God who rescues us. That through Jesus Christ, you have provided this universal rescue for all people, this, this invitation to know you and experience life in all of its fullness. This universal invitation to be forgiven of our sins and to have a relationship with you. And God, it grieves me that not everybody accepts this. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you inspire people more and more to accept this invitation to know your salvation. And as people don't know this reality, don't know this invitation, Lord, I pray that they, they find hope in you through how we reflect you to the world around us. And to a world that sometimes feels like an enemy, like it has a very different desire than what we do when we try to align our life with you. I pray that we continue to be faithful in trying to be more and like, more like you, Jesus, even when it seems like it's impossible. Help us to be led by you. Help us to live and lead like you. And help us to lead more people to know you through how we embody faithfulness to your invitation. I thank you for the words of David so long ago and how they can be an inspiration and a challenge for us to be more and more who you call us to be. And I pray they be that. In Jesus' name, amen.